Do you remember lunchtime in middle school? Some of you are there right now. Some of you are remembering a few decades back now. I remember being, bringing my brown paper bag lunch, usually lovingly packed by my mother. Some days I brought lunch for the cafeteria food. Either way, the thing that stands out most in my memory is this moment where I would turn fully into that cafeteria space with either that brown lunch bag or that brown cafeteria tray, and I would look out at the sea of tables and children filling them, the fourth graders and the fifth graders and the sixth graders, the ones into the sports, the ones into the arts, the ones into the video games. Is there any more an anxious moment in a child's life than when they turn to look upon those sea of tables filling and wonder, where will I sit? Who will have me? Thank goodness, for David Dupuis and Eric Fu, in my case, two friends who would always have me. Can you remember the names of some of the friends that would always have you? In her recent book, Friendship, The Evolution, Biology, and Extraordinary Power of Life's Fundamental Bond, uh, Lydia Denworth explores the breadth and depth of, of friendship, but at one point uh, writes, if you want to know whether your child is going to be happy or miserable, confident or anxious, the lunch hour really will tell you so much because, quote, these children are at that stage where they are entering a period of maximum concern over acceptance, rejection, and how they are perceived. And friendships have real measurable power to be a port in that storm. Denworth's research goes on to show how the, that need for friendship, while, while most acute, certainly in those middle school years in form, formation, it continues throughout one's life, not just to be a, a bonus or an extra thing that you get to enjoy when you have some downtime, you finish all the, the important things, but actually it is something utterly essential to the well-being of humans. It is a foundational port in life's many storms. When Jesus is talking to the disciples in John chapter 15, he's in the midst of what is known as, as his farewell discourse. He's making it very clear that a real storm is, is on the horizon. His time is coming for him to, to suffer and to die and, and, and to leave them, even as he'll give them the Holy Spirit. He warns of betrayal and denial coming up from within the disciples themselves. He warns of possible persecution. And what is one of the more profound ways he offers a word of comfort in the midst of this impending storm? I no longer call you servants, but I have called you friends. Friendship, Jesus declares, is essential to how he relates to us and therefore how we as the body of Jesus on earth relate to one another, which I think immediately raises the question, well, what do we mean by friendship? It is a warm and wonderful word that, that we, we, we feel very familiar with on one hand, but then as soon as we try to, to define it, it can be a little slippery. In the Greco-Roman culture that existed as the early church was taking formation, there were two things that marked a genuine friendship that were just culturally understood as, as the makers of, of, what, of genuine friendship. And both of them are at play in our passage today. The first thing that marks a genuine friendship was captured first by, by Aristotle, memorably, and others echoed us 
contemporaries of his echoed it. He writes, the virtuous man's conduct is often guided by the interests of his friends and of his country, and that he will, if necessary, lay down his life in their behalf. Friends are those who, if necessary, will lay down their life on behalf of another. At first glance, that's a, that's a bit striking, I think, to our sensibilities. We're far more prone to think initially of friendship as folks that we like, we share an affinity with something, we, we, we enjoy their conversation in, in downtime. But, but, but in ancient society, this laying down, this willingness to lay down one's life was, was a primary aspect of the definition of friendship. And so when Jesus says in our passage, greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends, he's not articulating something new. What is radical and striking about Jesus' words is that he actually does it. He actually embodies the, embodies the ideal to its fullest extent, even unto those who would betray and deny. I remember when my mom died in November of 2019. We were quickly putting together memorial services plans to take place at the Presbyterian Church in, in Cincinnati, where I grew up. And David Dupee, you remember one of those two middle school friends? I'd stayed in touch a little bit in our adult years, maybe a text or two each year. Well, he, he and his wife and three kids, they now live up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. He texts, he says, I saw the announcement about the service. I'll be there. He purchased a flight from Milwaukee to Cincinnati on very few days' notice uh, to be present for my mom's service. That same night, the Eric Fu, the other friend, without any communication with, with David or any sense of any of that going on, he also sends a text, I'll be flying in from Boston for the service. And I fell to our kitchen floor that night, weeping. Yes, for my mom for the new reality that, that, that now was, but also because I had no idea the, the depth of love that sacrificial friendship communicates, especially when the storm is real. No, these two friends, they didn't lay down their, their literal lives, but I do have some sense for their family demands, for their job demands, for the financial cost incurred to do this. And this was truly one of the most humbling, powerful moments in my life to know this embodied, sacrificial friendship. I, I don't think I had any idea just how acutely my soul ached to know that gift in that storm, needed, in fact, to know the gift in that storm. And I think that we as a society, we hunger to know this grace for friendship far more thoroughly and regularly than we often admit. In that book on friendship that I mentioned a bit earlier, Denworth cites studies done just before the pandemic where, 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 uh, showing that almost half of all Americans uh, sometimes or always feel alone. And she defines loneliness really as the opposite of, of friendship. And those same studies point out that while that isolation can and does happen in an old age as, as, as friends and family members die, the highest rates of loneliness were reported between, in, in those between the age range of 18 to 22. She then goes on to say that at a, mon, a molecular level in our bodies, and this is where the crux of her research is, what, how does friendship affect one's body? 
at a molecular level, loneliness ranks right up there with poverty, trauma, and bereavement. It negatively affects our cardiovascular system, our immune system, our sleep, our cognitive health. In many cases, especially in times of turmoil, change, storm, our bodies are literally crying out for the grace of friendship. I have called you friends. When's the last time we have known the sacrificial friendship of Jesus Christ made known to us? Perhaps through another in the body of Jesus Christ on earth. Perhaps in a recent storm. And what's it look like to offer that gift to another? Not as a bonus, not as sort of, oh, friendship, that thing we can have on the side, on the downtime, as extra, when we've got all the important things done. But, but, but how might we offer that as maybe the most critical gift we could offer? in these times. Some of you are on the weekly Friday email list. You, you may have seen the second round of Porch Pals begins on uh, Sunday, May 23rd that, that week. Small groups of six to ten folks in the congregation that will meet for four weeks in this particular Porch Pal round. Maybe that is a step the Holy Spirit would nudge some of you towards knowing the receiving and giving of this most central gift. The other mark of true friendship I mentioned there were two. In the ancient Greco-Roman society, besides laying a willingness to lay down one's life, was, was a frankness of speech with another. Friends were those who spoke honestly and openly with one another. They did not use words of, of flattery or sort of withhold and conceal and offer just a little bit of themselves. In our passage, it's clear Jesus is using this very open, frank manner of communication. I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends for everything I've learned from the Father, I have made known to you. I'm an open book, wide open. Here it is, all of it. And I love, in in chapter 16 of the Gospel of John, so just a little after our passage, the disciples recognize they're being spoken to plainly as friends. Because they say gratefully, now, Jesus, you are speaking clearly to us, or plainly to us, or frankly to us. Importantly, frankness of speech uh, doesn't carry the the sense of I'm going to speak what's ever on my mind in whatever way I want because that's how I feel and that's what's true. Frankness of speech, is it's more a speaking the truth in love sensibility. It's at once frank and compassionate, at once direct and loving, at once true and good. It's, It's usually the kind of Uh, a frankness known where there's a trust in the relationship. It's the kind of way that Jesus speaks to us. And it sounds like this. Let anyone among you who is without sin cast the first stone. If I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. First, take the log out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's. Love your enemies. I pray for those who persecute you. Have you known Jesus to speak a frank 
word of compassion and life in recent days, maybe in Scripture, maybe through prayer, maybe through another in the body of Jesus. And what what does it look like for us to offer that kind of friendship regularly with one another? About four years ago, I went to this uh, three-day conference hosted by the Center of Courage and Renewal, founded by a fairly well-known Quaker teacher and author, Parker Palmer. Quakers, as you know, are, are called the Society of Friends. It was a gathering which all these ministry leaders of all sorts were, were brought together to, to grow in our ability to discuss and discern amidst um, some of the more pressing and even controversial issues of our time. And the thing that stands out to me as I remember that, uh, the thing that stands out most is the amount of silence that was incorporated into these three days. They would put us in these small groups with one another. They'd open with a scripture and a prayer and then some sort of prompt or question that would invite a personal response or response about something going on in the world or, or maybe kind of a mix of both. Either way, there was one ground rule for, for these gatherings. We were always to treat silence as one of the members of the circle. And so when someone would respond to the prompt and, and offer something vulnerable and, and real and hard, everyone was asked to honor the silence before jumping in. It was a small thing, but a very practical way in which we had to honor something that, that really Quakers hold central, namely that Jesus is our friend. He is faithful to abide with us and in us, and, and, and we can know that gift if we'll but listen for the nearness of his presence. Truly, it was amazing how this little gift of silence between each comment, each reflection, each question, it pulled our hearts away from immediately jumping in with agree or disagree or, or all the accompanying motions to whatever was very real and poignant that was just said. It softened the space so that eventually when someone did speak frankly and openly and honestly, it also often was spoken compassionately. Which is to say, Jesus showed up in that silence and taught us how to speak the truth in love. Taught us how to speak as friends. And even in that three-day conference, friendships began forming across distinctly different differences in, in uh, ideology and age, race and denomination. Perhaps it goes without saying that we live in a time of, of Great change, uncertainty, and particularly in this last year, a great deal of isolation and so an accompanying hunger to belong. In fact, we can scan the horizon of our current cafeteria and, and, and readily see how quickly folks flock to like-looking, like-thinking, like-aged, like-politics, like-news source groups because there is a hunger to belong. What the Church of Jesus Christ declares is there is another table that is both different from all of those tables and extends right through the heart of each of those tables. It is a table known by its embodied sacrificial love given and received. It is a table marked by the kind of trust and vulnerability that gives and receives frank, compassionate speech. Which is to say it is a table marked by the friendship 
of Jesus Christ. What does it look like for us, the people of God, to receive afresh that friendship and these times and these aches? And to whom are we being called to give that gift? Who stands before the sea of tables this day? And maybe they look like they've got it all together, or maybe they're falling apart. But either way, who is being put on your heart that stands before the sea of tables out there this day and is asking within themselves, where will I sit? Who will have me? And as we lean toward those God puts on our heart, let us know that, that knowing the fullness of this gift, that's, it's not on us. In the quiet moments in between our ongoing interactions where we practice and live into friendship, we can slow and acknowledge the friend who does faithfully abide and who is faithful to shape us and faithful to shape them such that ultimately we do share at table with the unlikeliest mix of friends from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Amen.